you're new with us, we're finishing our series on Genesis chapters 1 to 11. Uh, we will come back to this book uh, at a later date, Lord willing. Next Sunday, we begin a new series on the Song of Songs that will be uh, either six or seven weeks. Uh, so if, if this genealogy isn't spicy enough for you, uh, just come back uh, uh, next week, all right? Um, we are finishing this series. It's been, a, for me, really enjoyable, edifying series. Uh, a number of our other pastors have been preaching uh, this summer. I've been deeply uh, enriched by their teaching. Uh, I'm very excited to, to preach even a genealogy today. Uh, someone said, man, I'm sorry you got to preach a genealogy. I'm like, I'm so excited to preach. I could do one name, I think, for 30 minutes uh, in, this, in this genealogy, uh, and then to start our series next week. So Great to have you in on this study as we look at this, uh, this uh, very interesting uh, text together. Let's pray before we look at it. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of it, the relevancy of it. We thank you for the gospel that is contained in it. And I pray that as we consider this genealogy, the story in the genealogy, the story that comes before it, the one that comes after it, all of it that points to Jesus, that you would draw us uh, to him. Uh, in a way that causes us to, to bow in worship and adoration and follow you in obedience. Come and have your way in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Denise read the latter portion of our passage. Uh, if you have a Bible, I do, I do invite you to turn it on or open it up to uh, uh, verse 10 of chapter 11 because there are a series of other names uh, that come before what we just read. And I'm sure you didn't wake up this morning thinking, you know, I'd really like some coffee and a genealogy. Um, most people, I guess, when they, when they come to these passages, uh, kind of just breeze through them uh, and don't give a whole lot of thought to them. It's sort of like an ancient phone book or an ancient 23andMe uh, kind of uh, uh, family uh, tree. And this may or may not be of interest to you, even your own family tree. My father has been very interested through the years in our family tree and was doing it uh, long before these programs were invented uh, that trace your DNA. And he called me after doing the, the research for, for several months, and he said, son, we're not who we thought we were. <laughs> um, and he loves to talk about this. So there's actually a lot in this, in this text. There's a lot that I want to show you, and I also want you to just think with me about what comes before it and what comes after it, because this is a very important genealogy that shows us something of the whole storyline of Scripture, and it's a genealogy of hope, and here we are today in need of hope as we think about the events around the world, as we think about the events in our own families, and this genealogy contains a message of hope, and it's a message of hope for the nations. In fact, chapters 10 to 12 hit this theme of the nations. Pastor Walter helped us think about it last week. But you might summarize chapter 10 by saying God is sovereign over the nations. And then summarize the Tower of Babel incident and in saying that God can thwart the purposes of the plans of the nations. And now in chapter 11, our text, into chapter 12, you might say that God has a plan to redeem the nations. He's sovereign over the nations. He can thwart the plans of the nations. And he has a plan to redeem the nations. His saving plan is not just for one people group, but it is for the whole world. And that plan runs right through this guy named Abraham and eventually to Jesus Christ. So while we're looking at one family tree, it's a family tree that's intended to bless the whole world. You might say that for God so loved the world that he called Abraham. He had the world in mind. This is a great startup story. I don't know if you like startup stories. I really do. I've read so many books and watched so many documentaries, listened to so many podcasts 
uh, one podcast I love is called How I Built This, which is about all these CEOs and how they started up these companies. And I'm interested in everything from Nike to hip hop. And most recently, I got on the Founding Fathers, and I've been reading all these biographies. I just read one by Samuel Adams about Samuel Adams. He didn't write it; he's, he's long gone now. But um, not the beer, right? The, the guy, uh, Samuel Adams. This is a, a startup story. It's the backstory of Abraham, the ultimate founding father. And as I said, it, it helps us to see something of the whole story of the Bible. And I want to show you a, a picture of, of a way that you could articulate the story of Scripture. Uh, that's not original to me. A, a lady once came up to her pastor and said she was having a hard time understanding how the whole Bible fit together. And I've showed you this before, but I, I think it's helpful, especially where we're at now at the end of this series in Genesis uh, as, as a bit of a review. But uh, the arrow pointing down is, is, is creation as God speaks the cosmos into existence. He makes Adam and Eve in his image and in his likeness. And then what do we read in chapter 3? But of Genesis, we read of the fall. That's noted by the X, also the symbol of Twitter. Uh, creation, <laughs> the, the two are related, I think, uh, the fall and Twitter. Um, and then the, the arrow pointing forward is, is kind of where we're at today in this text, in the story of Abraham, that God makes promises to Abraham. But there was actually a promise before that promise, and we read about that one in Genesis 3.15, that he promises to send one who will crush the head of the serpent. But the New Testament regularly goes back to the promise made to Abraham, as John Stott said, all the promises of the New Testament are anchored in and are an outworking of his promises first given to Abraham. So those promises of, about a Messiah come to realization as Jesus comes in the Gospels, noted by the cross there, uh, that's just a symbol of, of his crucifixion, resurrection, ascension. And we are now in this arrow going right. We are on mission. We have been sent out with the church for some 2,000 years now, bearing witness to Jesus Christ. And one day, uh, it'll all be made new as the last symbols uh, carries this idea of God coming down of a new creation, a new heaven, and a new earth. Well, God is the ultimate storyteller. And there is no story like the story of salvation. And this genealogy fits within this grand narrative of human history, this grand narrative of the Bible. So we come to our text today, and this is sort of the, it's like the, the end of a season finale. Although I've never seen a season finale end with a genealogy. <laughs> but um, it, it's, it ends the, the, what's called the primeval history of the world. That is the pre-patriarchal history of the world. After this, chapters 12 of Genesis all the way to the end is really following this one family. And so we'll pick up on that new season uh, later. Now one more uh, note before we look at the text closely. Um, there is a common pattern that we've seen thus far in Genesis 1 to 11, and the question is now, will that pattern continue? And this is the pattern. Sin, punishment, and then a word of grace or hope. So the first story with Adam and Eve, of course, they're made in, in the image and likeness of God, walking with God in the cool of the day, but then we read of sin. But that, and, and there's a punishment, there's a judgment. They are banished from the garden. But there's grace in the story as well as God covers them with animal skins and then promises to send one who will crush the head of the serpent. Next story, Cain and Abel. There is sin, Cain murders his brother, and there's judgment. Uh, he's sent away as a fugitive. But then there's grace in that he's given a mark to protect him, and there is a ray of hope as civilizations begin. Next story, the flood. There's obvious sin and corruption, 
and a very vivid form of judgment, the flood. But that's not the last word, right? God remembered Noah, a word of grace. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God promises to start all over again. He gives this rainbow as a permanent word of promise and grace to humanity. And then the next story, the Tower of Babel, we read about last week. There is sin as people in their pride and arrogance and independence from God try to build a tower and make a name for themselves. And God judges them by scattering them and separating them and confusing them. And so now we're left with the question, how will a word of grace and hope come? Will there be a word of grace and hope? There was actually a a bit of grace, as Walter noted last week, in the scattering of the people in, in the various languages. But following the Tower of Babel, we come to this genealogy, and we see that there is a word of grace. We are led to Abraham, the father of many nations. God will reverse the judgment on Babel through this man, Abraham. He will build a new family in this patriarch. There is no hope outside of the gracious blessing of God, but inside the blessing of God, there is great hope. And five times he tells Abraham that he will bless him. So this genealogy of hope leads us to the father of many nations. Through him will come Jesus and people who have fallen, people who have lived out the passions of the Tower of Babel ourselves know that there is rescue and hope and redemption in Jesus Christ. Now let's look at our text today in three parts. First of all, toward the chosen people, as we think about this family tree. Secondly, toward the promised land, as we think about Abraham going to Canaan. And then thirdly, toward the Messiah. So first, toward the chosen people. The bridge uh, between the Tower of Babel, that that fiasco, and this word of hope runs through uh, this genealogy, the genealogy of Shem. You notice him mentioned right there in verse 10 in our text. This genealogy complements the genealogy of Seth in chapter 5, where we read of ten generations from Adam's sons to, uh, to Noah. Here we have ten generations from Shem to Abraham. We move from a global people to a chosen people. And through the chosen people, all the nations will be blessed. We read in verse 10, these are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad. If you're looking for children's names, I don't think this is the text. Uh, Shem's not bad, but Arpachshad, that's one I haven't heard before. Uh, And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. Now, there's a very interesting wordplay I want you to see here. And it's with the name Shem. Remember at Babel, the people wanted to make a name for themselves. The Hebrew word for name is the word Shem. They wanted to make a name for themselves. And God says, I already have a Shem. I already have a way to make one's name great. My glory will come through him. My salvation will come through him. And what is it that he says to Abraham? I will make you a great name. If you try to make your name great, you will fail. All of us will fail. There is one name that is above every name. And what we need to do is align ourselves with the purpose and plan of God. To align ourselves with his story. And so he's got a plan. He's got a way to make a name. And it's going to come through Shem. And then in verses 12 down to verse 32 we read of all of these generations. Now, I impressively read through it in the 9. I'm not going to do it in here in the 11. But I do want to make eight observations quickly about this genealogy. 
First of all, and I would encourage you to, to scan through this as I, I make these points, the lifespans are shortening. You see, our Pakshad dies at 438 years old, which still sounds ridiculously long. But that's not near as old as Shem, who was 600. But then notice Peleg, he dies at 239, and that's about half the length of Eber's age at 464. And then by the time you get to the bottom, when you go to Nahor, that would have been the grandfather of Abraham. He only lives 148 years. Remember in Genesis 6-3, God predicted that man's lifespan would shorten. And we see that happening. It seems that sin has diminished one's lifespan. So by the time we get to the end of Genesis, Joseph dies at 110. So that's the first thing to observe. Secondly, notice the fathers of the children are much younger in this genealogy. And this is setting up something about Abraham's story. Abraham will have a child when he is 100, and that is to be considered old as it is. Um, but you see here, the, these, these fathers are given birth, uh, or they're bearing children through their wives uh, at an earlier age. So by the time you get to the Abraham story, you are to see that this is a miracle, that his child Isaac would come by God's divine providence. So the fathers of the children are much younger. Thirdly, this is very striking, the refrain, and he died, is absent. Do you notice that as you read down through here? The previous genealogy, eight times in chapter 5, we read of that phrase, and he died. As Genesis 5 was showing that one of the results of sin and the fall in the world is death. Death is prevailing against humanity. But now this genealogy doesn't mention these individuals dying. Of course, they did die. But what it's trying to denote is this idea of hope. God has a plan for the problem, and he died. And that plan will come through Abraham. It'll come through Shem to Abraham, to Jesus. So it's a genealogy of hope and of promise. Okay, fourth, you see that this genealogy is narrow, that it's focused on uh, Noah's son Shem. Previously, we were looking at a genealogy that was for the whole world, and now we see that God's purposes are going to be accomplished through this one particular line. You think about, you, when you get to the end of the Tower of Babel, and you kind of wonder, man, is everything just going to spin off into craziness and chaos and what are, what are we going to do with, with the world and humanity? And God ever so quietly selects Shem. It's the way God often operates. He's often doing thousands of things we never recognize. While, while the world was spinning off into chaos, he's got a plan through Shem to Arpachshad to Shelah to Eber to Peleg to Ru to Sarag to Nahor to Terah to Abraham. And then onwards through to Isaac and Jacob and generations to King David, and then from David's family line, one called Joseph, who was espoused to Mary, who gave birth to Jesus in Bethlehem in the days of Caesar Augustus. He is sovereign over human history. Fifthly, notice the midpoint of Shem's genealogy here contains a dividing line with the birth of Peleg. What I mean by that is if you go to chapter 10, you see that Eber has two sons, one named Peleg and one named Joktan. But the line then follows Joktan to the Tower of Babel, not Peleg. We pick up Peleg's line over here. His brother's line goes to the Tower of Babel. His line goes to Abraham. One line goes to disgrace, one line to grace. 
Sixthly, that name Eber is significant. This is where the Hebrews take their name from Eber, the Hebrews. He is the ancestor of the Hebrews. Seventh, the genealogy ends similarly to Noah's genealogy with Terah having three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And like this previous genealogy, Abraham, like, like Shem, is, is named first, but he wasn't the firstborn. That's because he has first importance. And the name Abraham also carries a lot, doesn't it? Abram is father and a word for exalted, but Abraham, we're told in Genesis 17, 5, means father of many nations. And then the final observation, the writer subtly introduces us to some drama when mentioning Abram's wife, Sarai. And I'm sure you caught that as Denise was reading the text. There, there's no other well, details like are included here. Verse 30, and Sarah, Sarai was barren, name would later be called Sarah, because she had no child. This is a bit of foreshadowing. We are introduced to a problem. We're introduced to what will set the stage for a miraculous birth of Isaac. And barrenness occurs several times in redemptive history with Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, Rachel, Ruth, Hannah, and God intervenes and they give birth to significant children along the plot line of redemptive history. It's almost like every time God is saying, keep a watch on this kid. I'm about to do something important. And all of that sets the stage for the birth of all births, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Babel brought disintegration, scattering, separation, confusion among the nations, but God has a plan to redeem the nations through this family, which the genealogy of Matthew will, will later uh, develop further, right? This genealogy says God has not forgotten us. Matthew's genealogy says even more that God is with us. And God continues to be involved in the world today. He continues saving individuals today. Just like these people are named, we have a personal God. And we, my friends, are included. This is our great story of redemption as well. This is our spiritual family tree. If you've ever... Um, read or watched Lord of the Rings, there's a great line where Sam looks to Frodo and he says, I wonder what sort of tale we've fallen into. This is the tale we've fallen into. The grand story of redemptive history. So, we read of this first section, and secondly, toward the promised land. We go from the names, we still have names, but we now get a sense of, of Abram's background, and we read about his faith and his family's move. Now, one of the reasons this genealogy is, is a, uh, another reason it's a genealogy of hope is because of who God selects to bless the world. Abram. Now, if you're like me, you, you may just sort of imagine, uh, you know, kind of Morgan Freeman or uh, I don't know who you'd have play Abraham. Uh, you kind of remember, uh, kinda, I think of it like a grandpa. that he's, You know, he's playing shuffleboard and... You know, he's, he's cuddly and warm and, and that kind of thing. Um, but Abraham was a pagan idolater. That's who God selects. Listen to what Joshua says about Abraham. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abram and Nahor, and they served other gods. In fact, his own name, along with other names in this list, point to the moon god as their main god. 
Both Ur and Haran were centers for moon worship. <laughs> the Creator God, who spoke the cosmos into existence, reaches into the heart of a polytheistic idolater and makes him the father of many nations. He says, Abraham, you're going to have more, you're worshiping the stars now, you're going to have more descendants than the stars. In spiritual darkness, Abraham hears God's call and responds to go to a land that God would show him. And why does he select Abraham? It wasn't because of his merit. It wasn't because of his religious works. It wasn't, but no, it's because of God's grace. It's really unexplainable that this one guy, out of all the other people in the world, God says, uh, how about this one right here? Yeah, he's worshiping the moon, <laughs> but I'm going to change his heart. And through him, Messiah will come. Kent Hughes, talking about the excavations of Ur, he says, these treasures of Ur tell us that Abraham's social and religious context was as sophisticated and pagan and claustrophobic as any in Babylon or Egypt. Ur was desolate and barren of knowledge of the true God. Right now, there's someone out in this world that is also barren of the knowledge of God, and God can change their hearts. He says, Ur's intrusive lunar religion dominated life from birth to the grave. This is who God chooses to bless and use for his saving purposes. So let's not doubt God's saving power today. Today, sadly, people are, many people are caught up in astrology and the occult, New Age mysticism and more. Recently, someone sent me the story of a young lady who had a podcast called To the Moon and Back. It was an astrology podcast, but apparently, like 46 episodes in, she became a Christian. She's rebranding the podcast to talk about Christ's redemption. What about that? This past week in Alpharetta, I heard of a church planner in Utah who just baptized 34 people, and he said a third were former Mormons, and he baptized an entire polygamous family. Praise God. I also heard a, a, a former drug dealer who's a church planter now. I'll, that proves my theory. I often say that former drug dealers make great church planters. Um, they're very resourceful, and they, they, they streetwise, you know what I'm saying? They know how to move stuff. Um, but this one, there was one particular town, I didn't know this, I'm assuming this is true, but the, the Wiccan offices are headquartered in this town, in this uh, kind of hippie town in West Virginia. And this kid got converted, planted a church, and he said now he's baptizing uh, people he used to sell drugs to. Well, that's the sort of thing that's going on. When, when God taps Abraham and says, you're it, I'm going to change your heart. I'm going to turn you into the father of many nations. And let that give you encouragement today as we think about those who are far from God. God loves to reach way down low and bring people out of the pit and put his feet on solid rock. I mean, why are we here? That's what he did for us. <laughs> well, secondly, we read here of Abram's faith and his family move. His family originated in the Ur of the Chaldeans. What a great place to be from. Where are you from, man? Ur. <laughs> That's so great. It's like, I, I, let me think about it. Ur, uh, you know. <laughs> and in a few places in Scripture, Abram's call comes from Ur, and then he goes to Canaan. 
But you notice in our text where they, they don't make it all the way. The family moves and they land in, in Haran and it just looks like they're just there. Like if we didn't have the rest of the Bible, it'd kind of be like, well, they just they died in Haran, I guess. They never made it the whole way for some reason and we have to fill in some of the gaps. But there's no indication that they intend to move uh, anywhere in the future. So two options exist. Either Abram was called in Ur, as we read about in uh, Genesis 15, 7, Nehemiah 9, 7, or in Stephen's sermon in the book of Acts. They all say that he came out of Ur, the Chaldeans, and not Haran. Um, it, they're generally close, but it's a good distance away from each other. Either he was called out of Ur before his dad, Terah, died, and he convinced his father to move with him, but they didn't make it, and because Abraham was under his father's authority, he waited till Terah died, and then he went on to Canaan. I think that's probably a likely scenario. Or his call actually happened in Haran, but that would contradict what we read in the, in the other texts. Either way, he calls him out of this pagan context, and Abraham leaves everything to follow God. He's old, he's prosperous, he's settled, and he leaves it all. If you just peek into Genesis 12... This is what we read. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Notice a few things. First, God sends him to a land he hasn't seen. How many of you would do that? And this is why the writer of Hebrews picks up on his faith. We call it the Hall of Faith. The Bible doesn't have a Hall of Fame because fame belongs to God alone, but it has a Hall of Faith. And here's Abraham. It says he obeyed when he was called to go out to the place that he was to receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. <laughs> hey, man, where are you going? No idea. It's going to be great, though. Uh, he's modeling for us this, this life of a pilgrim. Hebrews 11 goes on to say, By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. And I love this verse, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations. One city has foundations. Eternal foundations. Whose designer and builder is God. That's why he went out. He lived with a certain detachment from the world. And that's inspiring, isn't it? It's challenging to us because this goes against all modern sensibilities today in our, in, in our area, right? Everything around us shouts more security, bigger houses, more success, more comforts. Not, let's look for the city that is to come. Let's learn from Abraham. Let's learn from his faith, what a model it is for us. And notice how God also promises to bless him and make him a great nation. And Paul picks up on this in Galatians chapter 3 as he says, those who believe in Jesus, the promised one, are sons of Abraham. We're, we're included into the family of God. We come into this family by faith in Jesus alone. God does bless all the nations of the earth as all the nations of the earth trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And he promises to make his name great. Again, this is in great contrast to the Tower of Babel where they wanted to make a name for themselves. And here God says, I will make your name great. Now think about this. As Abraham is about to go to Canaan, he's got two obstacles. One, how, how are my descendants going to be as great as the stars when my wife is barren? 
That's quite a problem. Second, the Canaanites are in the land. And who am I to just go into the land and take it? Kevin DeYoung puts it well when he says, Okay, God, is this really a good idea? You're making these amazing promises, which have to do mainly with land and children, and both of these things seem to be in a very precarious predicament. There's people in the land, and there's no people in Sarai. He says, The Lord chose to work through a couple who had no earthly potential to accomplish the very thing He most wanted to accomplish. That's powerful, isn't it? Think about that, he says. A central thing I'm going to do for you is you'll have children, and in order to accomplish that end, I will pick this couple in their older years who have not been able to have children. That's the way God likes to do things. Here's how Paul comments on Abram's faith. He says, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I've made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. That's a great line, isn't it? In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. I wonder if that offended Abraham when he looked in from heaven to read what Paul said. <laughs> like, he's a hundred, he's as good as dead. Um, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, but the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. We come into the Christian life by faith and we continue by faith. And he's using Abraham as a model for us in Romans 4. But let's not merely admire the faith of Abraham, let's believe in the God of Abraham. The life-giving God of Abraham who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that are not. Why is it that we have a hard time trusting someone? Isn't it that we find them to be unreliable? We should never have that feeling about God. Not one word has ever failed. He's entirely trustworthy. And as we trust in Him, as we read in the psalm earlier, our hearts are glad in Him. There's a gladness in God that comes from trusting in God. Toward the promised land, finally, quickly, toward the Messiah. I don't have any, uh, well, 31 and 32 give us this storyline, but we need the rest of the Bible to unfold point three, that we are headed toward the promised Messiah. We've talked about this throughout the sermon. There's hope for the world, and it will come through the offspring of Abraham. Abraham's story is a story of faith and a story of God's faithfulness. It's a story that spans hundreds of years. We go to Canaan, and then we go to Egypt, then we go to the Exodus, then we go to the Judges, then we go to the Kings, then we go to exile, then we come back into the land. And throughout this whole narrative, we read of the great songs and prayers of the Psalms, the wisdom literature of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs, 
We read of the prophets speaking God's word, and it's a story that continues until it reaches its culmination point when Jesus Christ comes onto the scene in human history. This one who was present at creation, who created all things, as Paul said, and is sustaining all things right now, enters into human history being born of a virgin. He is the second Adam who came to reverse the curse. He is the promised one who will crush the head of the serpent. And in Jesus Christ, we read of the Father's character. We find grace and truth. We see him teaching with authority and not as the scribes. We see him displaying his miraculous working power time and time again. And then just as the prophets foretold, we see Jesus being crucified, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If we were to continue reading on in the story of Abraham, we come to Genesis 22, and we see there's a point where God asks Abraham to sacrifice his own beloved son but provides a substitute, a ram in the thicket, so Isaac is spared. Paul picks up on this in Romans 8, and he says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This Jesus Christ, this story is pointing to him, and through faith in him, the one who was raised for our justification, we know that we too will be raised from the dead, and we will enjoy something greater than Canaan, a new creation where righteousness and peace dwell, where the lion and the lamb play together. And one day the redeemed will be gathered all around the throne and we will see God's plan for the nations coming into all of its glory as we sing praises to the lamb. As John writes in Revelation 7, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying with one loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. In the midst of a broken world, in the midst of our own personal despair, there is grace and hope in Jesus Christ. So my friend, two words, believe, and belong. Believe in this promised one and belong to the people of God. Our future is bright. There is a grand story of redemption and that's the story we've fallen into. And there's no story like it. And praise God, he has revealed it to us in the pages of Holy Scripture. Let's pray together and offer him thanks. Father, we thank you for your amazing plan of salvation that you're running throughout human history, and we cannot begin to thank you enough for including us, for including us in the people of God, for putting us in this spiritual family tree. And so we give you praise, we give you honor. We praise you now as we think about what Jesus did for us on the cross, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. We give you praise through our songs, and may we give you praise this week with our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.